Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. It is the scandal that won't go away, but it is the scandal which could now go anyway. Awkward questions for David Cameron and his work with financier Lex Greensill have become awkward questions across Westminster and Whitehall. They're about access, standards, ethics, and the rules governing the jobs that ministers and civil servants can do after and sometimes during their work in government. We're going to look at what might happen next and what should happen next. All this as the UK braces itself for a set of really critical elections across England, Wales, Scotland, in London, other cities. This week, we're heading virtually to Cardiff to get a sense of what's at stake in next month's Welsh Parliament elections. Is independence suddenly a live issue? We'll dial up the IFG's resident expert. Joining me today is a dynamic IFG duo. We've got Tim Durrant, our associate director, who's been leading our response on the latest lobbying scandal. Hi, Tim. Hello. We've got Kath Haddon, IFG senior fellow and expert on all things constitutional. Hi, Kath. Hi, Bronwyn. I'm delighted that we're joined in the virtual studio by Adrian Masters, political editor of ITV Cymru Wales. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Bronwyn. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. Where are you talking to us today from? Well, I'm actually from Newport at the moment, which is where I live, um, uh, but I'll be relocating to the ITV studio in Cardiff straight after this. Brilliant. Well, thank you very, very much for joining us. Okay, let's kick off with Greenville and ethics and all that. David Cameron has famously tripped himself up over football in the past. Was it Aston Villa or West Ham that he supported? Even he seemed to forget. But football came to his aid this week when the botched breakaway European Super League bumped the Greensill saga from the front pages. But not, we suspect, for long. The dust is not settling on that affair. Tim, just bring us up to date. Where are we now? So, as you said, Bronwyn, uh, this all started with uh, revelations about uh, David Cameron talking to the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, uh, about support for Greensill during the um, pandemic. But it's grown much bigger than that. There's been revelations about civil servants working for Greensill while also being uh, appointed uh, to work for government. Revelations about Greensill having conversations with other ministers before the pandemic, including the health secretary. And then as well, a sort of question about how permeable is the barrier between the private and the public sector? What roles do ministers take on after they leave office? How do civil servants uh, sort of police those and indeed with civil servants themselves? We've also seen this week revelations about um, text messages between the prime minister, Boris Johnson, and the businessman, James Dyson, over uh, tax arrangements during the pandemic. So it's grown a lot over the last couple of weeks. I think we've got three parliamentary select committees looking into this. The Prime Minister has asked for a review in government, and it's still on all the front pages. So this is going well beyond David Cameron, though he's still going to uh, feature quite prominently in this as he gives evidence and and, and so on. Um, If the Prime Minister looks to um, be leading this charge, does that mean that he can protect himself from it coming to his door? Well, I think it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, a lot of the rules that apply are sort of ultimately enforced by the Prime Minister. You know, he is the person who who writes the ministerial code. The ministerial code is issued in his name. The um, the the rules that govern what ministers can do after leaving government, the business appointment rules, are also issued by the government. So if, if the Prime Minister wants to sort of clear things up, as it were, or clean things up, then it's, it's up to him to do that. I think he's going to have to sort of uh, assess how much people want uh, how much people in, in the government want to make those changes because, you know, there are many benefits to having conversations with private sector people. And from an individual point of view, ministers want to know that they can have a job after after government. So there's going to be a lot of uh, pressures on him to make changes. 
But I think there's also going to be a lot of pressure on him to not make too many changes. You've been doing some real thinking on this um, in advance of whatever we get from the Prime Minister and you're writing a report for us. And you're arguing that the rules need to change, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. So we think, you know, on on ministers taking jobs after government, we think if you've had a senior government job, if you've been prime minister, if you've been a cabinet minister, even the the ban on lobbying should be extended from it's currently two years. We think it should be extended up to five years uh, for senior ministers. Um, We also think the body that that polices that that ban should be given a a legal basis. Currently, it just exists um, because the government wants it to. The prime minister could decide to shut it down if he decided so we think it should be given a legal basis and be able to uh, ensure that people stick to the rules other than uh, other than just writing them a sternly worded letter, which is the only sanction at the moment. Um, we also think that the, um, the ministerial code should be toughened up. So at the moment, the only way that uh, an investigation can happen into uh, whether someone has breached the code is if the prime minister asks for there to be an investigation. The person he asks, his independent advisor, there is currently no independent. So the Prime Minister needs to appoint a new one. We understand that that appointment will be coming soon. But if they don't have the power to start their own investigations, then they're also, like um, the the Committee on Business Appointments, they're also pretty toothless. So giving proper, proper strengthening the rules and giving uh, real ability to enforce them to, to key bodies is really important. Okay, well, thank you, thank you for that. As you said, I mean, a stiff letter from Lord Pickles as the head of the committee isn't now isn't isn't doing the trick in many people's eyes. And the, the principle, I think, you know, the IFG is is very keen to point out is is not that you put up a firm barrier between the private sector and the public sector. There's been a really lot of effort in the civil service to try to get experience in the private sector in, but that you make sure that people are should not. And cannot be acting in in the public sector out of any possibility of of, of private gain, if you like. Kath, you look, have looked at this for many years. What do you make of the state of this this argument at the moment? Yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating one because, as Tim's been saying, it's speaking to a lot of wider issues about, as you say, the the relationship between the private and the public sector. And actually, the the revelations about James Dyson this week have really gone to it because the Prime Minister's defence is he needed this to happen quickly. It was in the midst of a pandemic. You know, Dyson was developing ventilators. It was an acute need, and he wanted to make sure that it happens as quickly as possible. So, in his eyes. Him engaging directly with James Dyson on this is perfectly proper. For many other people, though, seeing that if you've got the Prime Minister's phone number, and we we hear he hasn't changed it in 10 years, so it sounds like that's quite a few people, does that mean you get better access than somebody else? So it kind of goes to a really difficult issue there about... Yes, you know, relationships between governments and all sorts of different private sector bodies. Again, you know, we talked about football. Um, No doubt a lot happened behind the scenes where, um, you know, the government talked directly to sort of key individuals involved. So we know that that's a good thing to happen. But at the same time, if that means that you get extra access and that's useful for you for financial gain, then, you know, how much is that sort of, you know, overly elite? How much is it sort of bringing disrepute into government and so forth. So there's there's kind of different angles there. One is about, you know, what's proper in government? What's the right kind of access that people should be able to get? What are the sort of due processes? And how is it recorded? You know, because WhatsApp, text messages, are they being recorded by ministers in the right way? And the other is about the sort of the financial gain that people outside governments, including former prime ministers, might get from having contacts, connections and so forth. And what's the right way to police all of that? 
Well, that puts it very well. Thanks very much indeed for that. Adrian, how does this all look? What's the significance from where you're sitting? During the um, Welsh election campaign, um, the parties are very much treating it as a Westminster story and a Westminster issue. That doesn't mean that it's not having traction here. And I, I know that the Welsh Conservatives are privately concerned that it is eating into their support for the Welsh parliamentary election, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, a little later in the podcast. Um, there is a sense that it is a, a Westminster issue, but there is a separate uh, issue about lobbying with the Welsh uh, for the Welsh Parliament. There is, of course, a lobbying sector based in Cardiff Bay. It's smaller, and uh, perhaps uh, um, the people are known to each other a little more closely than than they are even at Westminster. It, 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 and it's a, a problem that has been highlighted by some politicians but hasn't yet ignited, which is still quite a surprise. Labour, which has been in government for the past 22 years, has has continually opposed a, a register, the creation of a register of lobbyists, while the other parties want that. Labour insists it's something for the Welsh parliamentary authorities uh, to sort out. So um, lobbying at a Welsh level is the issue that hasn't yet flared up. But then, like parliamentary expenses. It's something that um, no institution is uh, is immune from. I think that's exactly the right way of putting it. And you capture some of the nuances there. I was thinking as you were talking of the row, which we're not going to go into now, but uh, uh, about uh, Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the um, Alex Salmon case and the portrait uh, that came out there of, of, of the SNP and the government and people very, very close to each other, if you like. And that's one of the questions that people have about devolved government, whether the closeness can become a handicap. It's a very small world, the world of politics in Wales. There are 60 um, Senedd members and um, uh, when they retire as the former First Minister, Carwin Jones, is just about to do, then they um, they have to find something else to do, um, uh, as happens at Westminster. And he has been criticised for taking a role with with a private firm. Yeah, it, it, it is a small enclosed world. Uh, and that's something that the, the parties on the, the right of the political spectrum during this um, uh, Senate election campaign are, are trying to make um, make hay with. But it is it is not yet an issue that has flared up in the way that it has at Westminster. Kath, Tim used this word permeability, which is a word that the civil service has used, you know, to talk about um, trying to bring people in and out of, of the private sector. It was something that the late Jeremy Hayward, as, as cabinet secretary, was very concerned about uh, in trying to to achieve to make these worlds not foreign to each other. How awkward is is what's going on at the moment for the civil service, and does it get in the way of those aims? I think it is very awkward. I mean, some of it does go to a particular period in time when. Um, the government, particularly under Francis Maud, who was then Minister for the Cabinet Office, um, pushing for much greater involvement of people from the private sector, being able to get into and support governments, you know, um, in sort of key posts uh, like the one that Crothers had as, as head of procurement. So things to do with sort of commercial expertise, also to do with sort of IT expertise, bringing in non-executive directors, more of them heading up sort of boards that sort of oversee particular department or, or all of the departments and advise permanent secretaries. So lots of efforts to try and increase what has been happening for sort of 20, 30 years of trying to improve 
um, like you say, the permeability so that you don't just have this civil service that has no experience of the private sector, none of the sort of skills that you would want to have there and, and no ability for either civil servants to go out and then back into the to um, public sector work or for bringing in people from other walks of life, not just the private sector, charities, think tanks, academia, you know, wherever, um, so that you have a much greater skill set experience and so forth. But that period when Francis Maud was bringing in people, questions being posed now is just, did it go too far? Were the rules too lax? And so you have this case where people's um, other interests weren't being recorded, that perhaps the desire to bring them in meant that officials in charge of making the appointments didn't sort of push up against the conflict of interest that they might have revealed, that perhaps data wasn't being kept or the government wasn't being transparent enough about who was being appointed and what other interests they have. So it's kind of just showing that there's there's a really tricky balancing act there and that perhaps they went a bit too far or the rules weren't enforced correctly enough or that there wasn't enough transparency or clarity in government about what was happening. And I think that, you know, we discussed this before in, in our previous podcast on this, that that's frustrated a lot of civil servants who do abide by the, the rules. And this speaks to the majority of them. And to, so to be tarred by that brush, because you've got these one or two cases that are coming out that show up the problems is a real challenge for them. And the danger is that we overreact and stop that, that permeability, that that interaction between them and that we can't find the right balance where you're getting those really good skills and experience whilst making sure that it doesn't give people an unfair sort of financial advantage. Tricky balancing acts, which you referred to, don't always play well in politics. Tim, I mean, from a political point of view, do the allegations of sleaze stick? Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, really went for it at Prime Minister's questions. Yeah, he did, and he's clearly hoping that they stick. I mean, I, I think it's an interesting question. I think you know there the are regular polls, aren't there, showing that you know politicians in general are the least trusted people uh, in the country. So I wonder how much of this uh, sort of cuts through, or how much of it people will go. Well, of course they're all you know they're all there's sleaze going on. That's just what they do. Um, I was looking before this, and, and the Independent has a poll out today that says I think over two thirds of people want action taken to um, to sort of increase the rules and transparency around lobbying. So uh, I think just the fact that there's been, you know, this kind of steady flow of, of uh, revelations of, of news on this topic over the last few weeks is, is building into something of a, of a moment. And I think, you know, it's completely understandable that the opposition want to make, make hay at the time, but it feels like there is a sort of a growing pressure and expectation that the government will, um, will have to do something. And there's also, I mean, you know, Labour aren't immune from all of this and Conservatives are certainly trying to, again, point out sort of trade union links, other links. I mean, Tony Blair, during his time as prime minister, had the Eccleston scandal and and close links there. So this isn't just something that um, the Conservative government is susceptible to. But I think it's because it's it's come on the back of many other stories about how PPE, uh, personal protective equipment contracts were signed out rapidly last year. You know, other links, including uh, Robert Jenrick's links to a particular building planning row. Uh, there's there's all sorts of other stories that have been bubbling under the surface, but haven't really reached the top of it, which is why Labour are trying to sort of cash in on this one now and really try to hammer it home. But I think Tim's right. 
really it'll end up being about sort of the wider problems in in the rules and how they're enforced and the sort of the ecosystem more generally rather than just be something that is particular to this conservative government I think that's a good way of capturing it. Adrian, just we're coming on to the elections in, in a second, but just, Keir Starmer's a blast of sleaze, sleaze, sleaze at the, at, the, at the government. Did that land with Welsh Labour? Welsh Labour are very keen on um, uh, strengthening their links with, with Keir Starmer, which hasn't always been the case between the Welsh Party and the UK Party. So, yes, they uh, they, they certainly echoed that. But um, uh, what I would reiterate is that the Welsh Labour government hasn't um, chosen to make lobbying uh, a, a, a hill on which it's prepared to die on. Um, and I think that is the difference. And that's why you would probably hear Mark Drakeford talking about it less than you would with Keir Starmer. Thanks for that. And Tim, uh, you've got to get back and finish our report and recommendations soon. Just really briefly, where's this going to go next, even in the next week? Well, so we've got more parliamentary select committees lined up. So there'll be more hearings on this front. I think that's going to be interesting. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm just constantly watching Laura Koonsberg's Twitter feed to see what the next uh, revelation is, you know, who who else has the Prime Minister been talking to or who else has David Cameron been talking to because it feels like it's not over yet. So I think there'll be more leaks, more sort of instances of, of lobbying and I think there'll be more uh, parliamentary pressure coming. Okay, a tip there for the BBC's Laura Koonsberg. Tim, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Okay, let's leave Westminster now and head to Wales. On the 6th of May, voters are going to elect 60 members to represent them in the Senate and pass legislation on a wide range of devolved areas. Some polls are predicting the closest election since the devolution settlement in 1999. So joining us now to talk about this is the IFG senior fellow who heads up our devolution work, Akash Pound. Hi, Akash. Hi, Bronwyn. Nice to be back on the podcast. Great. Well, there's going to be a lot of it before and after these elections, I think. How excited are you about these these ones? Well, Bronwyn, you know I'm a, a bit of a devolution geek, so inevitably May the 6th is going to be quite a quite an exciting moment um, with these big elections, as you say, um, well, all across Great Britain, including the, the sixth election to uh, Seneth Cymru, to, to the Welsh Parliament, as it's now called. And, um, I mean, I do think this is quite an interesting election. I mean, as as Adrian mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Welsh Labour's been in power for the entire 22 years of devolution. It's, it's won between 26 and 30 out of 60 seats at every single election held to date. But there are some signs of its uh, position potentially uh, weakening. Um, I mean, not just in, in some of the recent opinion polls, but I mean, even back in 2016, the, the last uh, assembly election, as then was. The party got quite lucky, actually. It lost quite a lot of votes, but just because of the way the votes were distributed and the way the system worked, it um, ended up still winning 29 seats. But it was quite a fragile victory. And then we saw in 2019 the Conservatives making quite sizable gains in Wales. I mean, they won in the general election, they won 14 out of 40 seats, which was the, 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 the greatest number of uh, Welsh Conservative seats uh, since 1983, I think. So 
definitely going to be interesting to see whether they can carry forward that kind of performance to the Senate election next month. And then, of course, Labour does face quite a strong challenge from from its other flank, from from Plaid Cymru, led by by Adam Price. Um, so, yeah, I feel like there's some quite big dividing lines as well in in a way that hasn't always been uh, the case in, in in Welsh politics. Let's come on to that in a second. But I, I want to bring in I want to bring in Adrian. Thank you. Thank you for that. I want to bring in Adrian. Um, you've got a new poll out. What does it show? And what do you make of what Akash has just said? Well, we timed this poll just for you, Bronwyn, because um, <laughs> it uh, it certainly seems that way. Yeah, th- th- this is actually it's the latest in our what we call the Welsh Political Barometer poll, which we do in conjunction with Cardiff University. YouGov carry out for us, and it, it shows. I mean, there has been a changing picture. The picture had seen the Conservatives on course to repeat the kind of success that Akash was talking about from the 2019 uh, UK election. Our poll now shows that turning around so that Labour's gained ground and could keep hold of the uh, the Welsh red wall seats across the, the north of Wales, which it lost, uh, many of which it lost to the Conservatives in 2019. Um, but, it, but it's not an alloyed good news for, for Labour because they also face losing ground to Plaid Cymru. The uh, seat projection figures that we're talking about would see Labour on something like 26 seats, the Conservatives on 14 and Plaid Cymru on 17. That would be the low point for, it would match the low point for Labour uh, that Akash just mentioned of 26 seats uh, and it would match Plaid Cymru's high point of 17 seats and it would strongly suggest uh, a a Labour Plaid Cymru coalition as being the only way forward afterwards. The other interesting aspect to this uh, poll Bronwyn that I can tell you about is the is that we're predicting on the basis of this two seats for a party called Abolish the Welsh Assembly, even though the Welsh Assembly is no more. It's now called Senedd Cymru or Welsh Parliament. They're still called Abolish the Welsh Assembly. They want to get rid of it, but they are uh, polling quite uh, reasonable figures, enough to see them get two seats in the Senedd anyway. All right, and am I right that they came out of the kind of former UKIP supporters? You have a, a, primarily yes. They they, they come from um, a, a mixture of conservative and former UKIP supporters. The UKIP supporters, as they have been elsewhere, have been on quite a journey through um, UKIP reform, independent parties, and um, and some of them have ended up with abolish the Welsh Assembly. So take us into that vision of a coalition: Welsh Labour and Plaid Cymru. What would that put Plaid Cymru in a position to demand? Uh, Welsh Labour and Plaid Cymru have formed a coalition before now, um, back in 2007, when Labour won 26 seats, as we're predicting uh, at this stage. Adam Price has said that he would not uh, accept being a junior partner in a coalition, having learned the lessons both from the Westminster Coalition of 2010 and his own party's coalition when the former leader, Ian Wynne-Jones, was Deputy First Minister. Um, I, I, I can see that still being up for negotiation, regardless of the prospect of, of power and being in government would be too strong. What is very interesting is that Plaid Cymru this time around has made its uh, commitment to a referendum on independence absolutely crystal clear. There's no doubting it. An independence referendum within a first term of applied Cymru government is a, an absolute cast iron clear commitment. What it's not is included in its top five pledges, the kind of pledges that get put on posters and on pledge cards. And all that Adam Price has said is that he would want to, see, he would only be part of a, um, a Welsh government that was progressing towards independence. He hasn't made it a black and white condition of being part of that coalition. It, it's not a red line. 
uh, certainly in what in terms of what he's saying um, publicly. Whereas for Labour, commitment to independence or, or not committing to independence, it probably is a red line. So I think they they're both giving themselves rigor room for at least some kind of informal arrangement, if not a full coalition. All right, but Welsh Labour, uh, at least as it is at the moment under Mark Drakeford, has said, "Look, we, we, we're a unionist party. We want uh, all kinds of things for Wales." Absolutely. But, Welsh, but Welsh Labour that. is criticised, and Mark Drakeford in particular is criticised for flirting with the idea of independence. He's used the term "home rule." He said the UK is virtually over. The, the, he he has a nuanced position on that, but he's certainly speaking to those nationalist voters to say that it, your vote is is safe with us. Kath, why do you think Plaid Cymru is doing well, um, even though Mark Drakeford has had really a, 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 a good past year during the pandemic and his handling of of, um, of Wales and the coronavirus? I think the others can probably speak better to this, but I mean, it is one of those extraordinary things that, you know, yet again, the sort of the current performance doesn't seem to necessarily reflect in, in voting. I mean, you look at polling for um, the UK governments and they're still doing very well, even though there's quite quite a lot of disillusionment with how the UK government performed. Mark Drayford, on the other hand, has seemed to have performed well. And I think Adam Price has been quite supportive of the approach that he's taken. And yet they're struggling in votes. So there's there's something deeper going on here. Obviously, there are, you know, as with the devolution question more widely, there's always uh, sort of the broader direction of travel, whether people want greater devolution or independence and how that bowls to the surface. There's kind of identity politics going on here. Perhaps COVID has also sort of increased that sense of of identity, but some of it will just come down to sort of local issues and, and um, you know, the performance of key individuals and who they like to see. And so perhaps this is, is really about how, uh, you know, the Conservatives in Wales have been performing in terms of the way in which they're communicating to people. And, and some of it, though, like I say, is going to be sort of more about protest votes and sort of, you know, uh, exerting your identity and so forth. And I'd add to what Kath says on that, in that as well as it being about local issues, it's also, much as the parties would uh, prefer it otherwise, it can also be about UK issues. So the Conservatives mm. have seen have been seen to do well on the coattails of Boris Johnson when the vaccine programme was being seen as a success. Mm. Now that things seem to be changing slightly in terms of that perception, the Welsh Conservatives look as though they're losing support. So sometimes, and it's frustrating for uh, political journalists in Wales as well as political parties, but sometimes it's issues outside Wales that influence what goes on here. Yeah, we also shouldn't overstate, of course, the the Welsh decline. I mean, I do, to go back to the point already made, I think even if they Labour is, is on course to win, say, 26 seats, after more than two decades in power, that's still a very um, impressive performance. So any kind of decline we're talking about, well, we'll see what actually happens, but um, it's all relative. That's a really important point. Adrian, I wonder if just for a moment you could take us into deep geek land. We are <laughs> And tell us whether there's any difference in the polling between, as far as you can tell, between the support for the um, the 40 seats uh, that are constituency-based, the same boundaries as, as the uh, Westminster MP ones, and the, the, the 20 Senate seats that come from the, 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 the five big regions, which go on PR as opposed to first past the post, 
and um, are attempted to give some kind of PR representation for people's views. I, I'm very much. I mean, the the um, the the regional list seats is where UKIP managed to gain its foothold in uh, Welsh politics in 2016. It won seven seats, all regional list seats, no constituency seats. The same thing is happening now with uh, abolish the assembly, um, which is looking at gaining. The, our poll shows it gaining very little support at a constituency level, but at a, um, a regional level, it's on seven percent, and that's what we predict would lead to its kind of seat. So there, there is a difference. People are conscious of having two different votes and the parties play on that. They very much uh, emphasise the fact that people have two votes. The smaller parties particularly abolish the Assembly and the, the Greens and Lib Dems talk about uh, and remind voters to use their second vote. So the polling shows different things going on in, in, in the uh, regionalist vote to the constituencies and that, that will have an impact. Really interesting. And I must ask you, is Brexit playing in this vote at all? Surprisingly, Brexit has uh, all but evaporated as an issue in this election. Even the Welsh Liberal Democrats, which like the UK Liberal Democrats have been uh, absolutely um, uh, devoted to the idea of revoking Brexit and, and, and rejoining, are now explicitly saying they're no longer a rejoined party, that the page has turned. Plaid Cymru, which uh, does want to join EFTA and wants a closer relationship with the EU is also not talking about reopening the referendum. So, yeah, I, I think painful as Brexit has been in Wales as much as it has been across the UK, it's evaporated as an issue. Really interesting. And we're probably a couple of years too early to be talking about grief for hill farmers and this this kind of thing, which may yet come up. So, Akash, just, just help us wrap this up. Where do you think the devolution debate is going to be after these elections. Is there going to be, as Keir Starmer is is pushing for, more talk about more powers to the devolved administrations, full-blown independence? Where, where do you think we're going to be? So as um, Adrian said, I mean, I, I, it's very hard to imagine a government that doesn't have uh, Labour in uh, as, as either by itself or in coalition with Clyde after May the 6th. And I think that means, you know, actual... Uh, independence is is very unlikely to be part of the the Welsh government's agenda. But Keir Starmer is uh, setting up this new constitutional commission, um, as we know, to to, to be led by or chaired by by Gordon Brown, we understand. That's going to be developing some kind of federal vision, perhaps, uh, for the UK as a whole. That's not a, a vision that the Conservatives seem to have any particular interest in. Um, I mean, to go back to Wales, the Welsh Conservative position on, on the Constitution is very clear. We don't want any further change. No more powers, no more constitutional chaos is the line that Welsh Conservative leader Andrew R.T. Davies has, has taken. And I think that's a position broadly shared by the, by the Conservatives at Westminster. So we may end up with... Well, who knows exactly what uh, it will happen in, in Scotland, but some uh, SNP government, uh, some form of SNP government pushing for independence seems probable. In Wales, it seems likely you might have a Labour-plied uh, coalition that would unite around a position of, of seeking further devolution, further guarantees that uh, the Welsh devolution can't be impinged upon by Westminster. But in the end, I think the UK government might, might simply be uninterested in uh, entertaining any of those kind of proposals. 
Okay, well, look, thanks for those thoughts. I'm probably as far ahead as we can see at this point, but it's not very far until we get the results. Akash, also, before we go, um, I need to bring you into our final, final tiny subject. Well, it isn't a tiny subject. Um, You're the IFG's football team captain and you're an avid fan. Just quickly, your take on how the government handled the whole drama of six English Premier League clubs trying really briefly to be part of a breakaway European Super League. Yes, it was it was a brief episode. It, it fell apart even not even a week in politics. No, yeah, even it was even faster than uh, Change UK. But I, I mean, I think politically the government has judged it fairly well. I would say, but you know, they they came out very quickly in opposition to the breakaway plans. There were there were suggestions that they might actually legislate to stop it. And then they've brought forward this review of football, fan-led review, as they like to call it, which will be led by former sports minister Tracy Crouch. I mean, that was an idea in the manifesto. So it wasn't something that obviously was just dreamt up as a result of the the European Super League plans, but um, they brought it forward. And I think they captured the, the, the political moment quite well. There was pretty much universal opposition to the ESL proposals, across the political spectrum, from fans, from players, from pretty much the entire football community, it felt like. The owners of those big clubs clearly very badly miscalculated what was the re- what the reaction was likely to be. And they've now left themselves in a, in a much weaker position. I mean, it's interesting to see now, obviously, exactly what the, the terms of reference for the, for the review of football will include. But I mean, it, it may well be looking at issues like fan involvement in, in the running of clubs. I think actually getting involved in, in, in rules around ownership, uh, I'd be quite, I'd be more surprised to see the government actually legislating for that. I think there's hints that they're, they're leery of that. But yes. wondering what, how, how important the government's involvement was as you said there was enormous uproar from fans and all kinds of things which shook the, the clubs Boris Johnson did react very fast on this claiming that he was going to do all kinds of things he reacted more quickly some have noted than he did to the recent violent protests in Northern Ireland was he is he claiming too much or did the government's threats actually play quite a part in the in the club's decision to reverse well it's hard to know exactly what was going on behind the scenes I mean Kath said earlier in this uh, podcast that no doubt there was behind the scenes pressure, maybe direct conversations between the Prime Minister and owners of, of, of some of these clubs. That's that's possible. In terms of what was said publicly, I mean yes, the sort of suggestion that the government might might bring forward legislation somehow, I mean the details were never made clear, but somehow to try and stop it must have weighed on the minds of the uh, the owners and and the boards of the clubs in question, but I'm sure it was only one factor because you know the the backlash from from players from fans was was pretty much uh, universal. And, and from and, UEFA, and, 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 indeed, and, I mean, and the clubs have to te- have to yeah. be responsive to that. Kath, so how yeah. did the government score? I think they did pretty well on this. Like I say, I think it was a combination of being on the front foot, you know, as Akash was saying, in terms of what they were threatening. I think if they'd actually had to go through with it, it would have been far harder thinking, how do you legislate for this? How do you, you know, avoid a sort of legal reaction from the clubs and so forth? So the combination of a very heavy handed but not very clear threat 
and whatever was going on behind the scenes. I suspect the Prime Minister wasn't talking necessarily to the the owners of the clubs, but I'm sure he was talking to the FA, to the Premier League, you know, to the many organisations that would have been involved in this. And there probably would have been messages then passed on to the, the boards of the football clubs in questions that said, look, we really mean this. So we're going to take action if you try and do this. So perhaps that plus, you know, as Akash said, I think the fan reaction and the, you know, the reaction of the players themselves and some of the coaches and all the rest of it and UEFA, you know, yeah. it, it's, yeah. it's basically everyone. So, um, yeah. yeah. Much easier to work for him than the lobbying. Yeah. I mean, I think the main thing is that the government have got very lucky that this has self-imploded rather than they actually had to take action. Which brings us back to our very opening point. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap up this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Tim Durrant, Kath Haddon, Akash Pan, and especially to Adrian Masters speaking to us from Newport, but within a half an hour or so from Cardiff. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Bye-bye. If you enjoy this podcast, then do head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got a couple of terrific new episodes there for you, including my interview with Suzanne Hayward on the life and career of her late husband, former Cabinet Secretary Jeremy Hayward. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and get in the mood for Election Day by voting for us and leaving us a review. Remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. See you next week and don't go forming any breakaway super podcast in the meantime.